This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Now, many of our listeners will remember that in many episodes of our podcast, we look at the international and humanitarian side of events in international Geneva. Today, we're going to do something a little different. The World Trade Organization is the place where countries come to talk about trade, uh, negotiate trade, so new rules, new disciplines, and also keep an eye on each other's practices. The World Trade Organization, theoretically designed to prevent this. Trade war worries igniting. Is the trade war back on? Trade war. Trade war. Full-blown trade war. The weapons in a trade war are everywhere. It's the food you eat. The train you ride to work. Now... Trade is a very complicated thing. We know countries sell things to each other. We know they like to export. And of course, we know they like their imports as cheap as possible. Frankly, that's about as much as I know. Luckily, today, I've got some experts to discuss. Peter Umfacorn, formerly of the World Trade Organization. Journalist Tom Miles, formerly with Reuters who covered the World Trade Organization here in Geneva, and, of course, resident analyst Daniel Warner. Tom, since you've spent so much time explaining complicated trade matters to readers, tell us in a nutshell what the WTO is. Well, uh, I'd rather start with what is it. Um, What is it is an agreement between 164 members who are basically governments of the world. So, you know, if you think about it, you start thinking about it in the active sense, as in it does this and it does that. And what does it think? What does it say? Very quickly, you get into a misconception of thinking that the WTO has some sort of power or role. Um, it's it's a, an organization which is, um, see, already I'm calling it an organization, which it is, but that gives the impression that it's this sort of, you know, thinking beast Um, And that's the wrong way to approach it, I think. It's an agreement. It's an agreement between a whole load of countries that have got together, and they agreed in 1995, which is 25 years ago now, to set uh, basic minimum standards for how they would treat each other when trading. They promised to publish their laws and other sort of policies that affected trade, and they promised to not raise their tariffs beyond a certain maximum. So for every single product, you, you can look up in these sort of vast lists you know, what is the maximum tariff that a, that a country could um, impose on a certain good. And so just to explain what a tariff is, it's an import tax. If a company is importing from one country to another, then the country that is, is receiving that good, um, you know, might impose a tax on those goods. And in, in the old days, when I mean, you go back to the Middle Ages and the last few hundred years, you'll find many instances of countries using this as a sort of, you know, weapon against each other. And this seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess, if you wanted to pick friends and, and bully your rivals. Um, what the WTO did, essentially, was to say, look, these are the maximums. You won't be able to charge more than this tariff on anybody, and everybody has to get the same deal. You cannot discriminate between different countries that you trade with. 
So if I'm, if I'm Mexico, essentially I have to treat the United States and China and New Zealand and Moldova all exactly the same. There are, of course, uh, exceptions to this, but it, what the WTO is, is, a, is an agreement between countries for a basic approach to trade and openness. So it's, it's about transparency. It's about um, level playing field for everybody. In 1995, the, the founding of the WTO really sort of cemented this system because it produced this level playing field of, of uh, maximum tariffs. And it also uh, introduced a system of binding dispute settlement. And, and that's what's really been operating for the last 25 years. And it gets more controversial from there. Yes. Now, we're going to come along to controversy in a moment. But Peter, you're a WTO insider in a way, whereas Tom and I, we've been reporting the WTO from the outside. My memory is endless nights in 2008 waiting for those Doha agreements, which never really happened. Now, what Tom describes here sounds ideal, but yet getting countries to agree seems often just about impossible. Why is that? Can can I step back a bit before we come to that question? Because but I think what I'd like to say about the WTO overall is it has an objective that a lot of people have forgotten. The main objective of the WTO is not just to avoid trade wars, it's to help trade flow smoothly and predictably and for, for it to be stable. And, and I see it a little bit like building a road. You, if you want to travel somewhere and there's no road, then you've got rough terrain and you've got all sorts of bumps. And, and obstacles and maybe a mountain or two in the way. And in the end, you end up with, with a, a, a great highway that goes very, very smoothly. You don't hear much about the highway. You hear about the accidents on the highway. You hear about the snarl-ups on the highway, but you don't realize that most of that highway is working. And that's the case with the WTO. In normal times, about $20 trillion of trade circulates around the world, fully compatible with WTO rules, stable and predictable because the WTO rules are there and because governments, when they introduce measures, they comply with WTO rules. And, and therefore, it's, it's happening almost unnoticed. And, and if you want to judge what the, whether the WTO is successful or not, don't just look at whether negotiations are successful or dispute. There are lots of disputes or whatever. Look at how much trade is actually flowing without any problems, because that's what, what it achieves. It's not just information sharing and transparency. It's about the ability to talk, to discuss things. And the whole point about this is it's about implementing the agreements. You can't just negotiate something, sign an agreement and say it's done. That's it. You have to implement them. You have to monitor that it's been implemented being implemented. And a lot of that work on sharing information is designed to make sure that the implementation works. And it's about peer review. For example, in an area that's not tariffs that Tom talks about, but non-tariff areas, standards, product safety, food safety, animal plant health, uh, labeling, and all of that. These are a, a bunch of um, obstacles to trade, potential obstacles to trade that are called non-tariff barriers. In a quarter of a century since the WTO was set up, governments have notified each other through the WTO around 60,000 measures only on those. That's 60K measures on, on these non-tariff barriers. Of those, how many ended up as full-blown disputes? About 40. 
0.07%. That's seven out of every 10,000 measures that have been notified to the WTO ended up as disputes. So while disputes are important, and we're going to get on and talk about them and what the problems are in there, it's important to remember that part of the function of the WTO is to avoid disputes. And it's this notification, the ability to discuss them amongst the members in the committees, to sort things out and, and never get to disputes that's also been a successful part of the WTO. Because all the media stories about the WTO are, are about where there are problems. And I understand news is usually negative, but occasionally there's a time when you might be able to add, actually, it's working. That is a good point, actually, and I need to hold my own hand up in a, a guilty plea there because my own reporting in the WTO was mainly about those disputes, Boeing, Airbus, bananas. Danny, let's bring you in now. I'm sure you've got a pertinent point. Well, I mean, the history of the WTO is fascinating. It was originally supposed to be the international trade organization is part of the euphoria after the Second World War. And its real purpose, as I understand, is economic integration. And certainly recently, the, the fact that China became a member in 2001 and Russia became a member in 2012 with all the problems with Georgia. So in fact, it is a system, 164 countries, most of the major trading partners so there has been historically a certain integration economically. But although the GATT General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade became the WTO, so why did it take so long for the International Trade Organization or WTO to come into being from 1948 until 1995? There must have been problems all along. Okay, so let's bring it up to date a bit. We've heard from all of you the historic benefits of the WTO, and we all know them. We all work in Geneva. We work in the multilateral system all the time. So we can see those benefits. And yet others, big economic powers, some of them don't seem to. Here's one of them, and I'm sure you'll recognize his voice. We were losing all our cases in the World Trade Organization. Almost every case we lost, lost, lost. They thought we were stupid. And then I came along, now we're winning a lot of cases because they know that they're not on very solid ground. We will leave if we have to. They have been screwing us for years and it's not gonna happen any longer. They get it, they get it. So they're giving us victories. They're giving us victories. So that's some um, President Donald Trump there. Now we can take those words with a pinch of salt if we like, because we know he seems to be suspicious of anything that's not born and bred in the USA. He doesn't seem to be a big fan of multilateral efforts. He wants, as he said in that clip there, he wants victories inside multilateral bodies. And yet he's also suggesting he might pull the US out. He's already done that with the World Health Organization, thinking about pulling out. And Peter... Maybe you can explain this. He's brought the dispute process of the WTO to a standstill. How's that actually happened? Uh, that's a really complicated issue. Um, it's about dispute settlement and it's the appeal stage that's in trouble in the WTO because the Americans, and this isn't just, doesn't just go back to Trump. It started in the Obama administration as well, that they objected to the way the appellate body when it was looking at appeals, but they didn't like the way that the appellate body was interpreting the law. 
Now, you mentioned that negotiations take a long time. That's because they need consensus amongst all the countries involved. And one way of reaching agreement is to fudge what's called sometimes um, constructive ambiguity. So there are vague bits in WTO agreements, and WTO rules, and there are vague bits. At the time of the, the negotiations, they said, well, look, let's leave it at that. You can claim you won, I claim I've won, and we can see you in court. But when they got to the court, then there were problems because they didn't like the way the court was interpreting. The Americans in particular alleged that the court was overstepping, the appellate body was overstepping its uh, mandate when it um, interpreted the law. To cut a very long story short, if you look at the real problem, it's not so much appeals in general, it's mainly about something called anti-dumping, which is a, a, a technical issue. It's something that, that American lobbies have been very keen on and people in the America, in the US administration have been concerned about that. So it's mainly about things like anti-dumping and subsidies, which, which are a very narrow part of WTO agreements. As a result of that, the Trump administration refused to allow new appellate body judges to be appointed. They're normally seven. They have to be at least three to hear a case um, since last December because they blocked reappointments as terms gradually expired. We now only have one left. And I think at the end of this year, there won't be any at all. So basically the appellate body cannot function at the moment. So there's no proper formal legal appeal system anymore. And, and that kind of handicaps the, the legal process of dispute settlement. Tom, do you go along with that? Because me, with my journalist instincts, I know every country has certain doubts about the way the WTO works, and we'll talk about reform in a little bit. But what I see with this refusing to appoint the appellate body judges seems to me like a really cynical political move to try and swing a big stick and get your own way which is kind of what we're used to sometimes from the United States. I'd agree with everything that Peter said until he mentioned Obama. I mean, look, Peter, is he's a master of the, the WTO. He really knows the detail. I, I don't disagree with anything, but it's all too easy, I think, to let Trump off hook and, and say, oh, no, this is other things, you know, and there are problems here. And oh, yeah, what about this? No, essentially, this is about Trump attacking the WTO because, yeah, it's true that the Obama administration had, you know, some of the same complaints that Trump had, but you couldn't have imagined in a million years that Obama would bring the WTO to the brink of collapse. It's so undermined now. It's really, really, really in trouble. And I just think that Obama or, you know, anybody else would have been much more constructive than Trump. For Trump, this is about fighting with China. It's about trade and jobs, because, you know, it's easy to blame foreigners for stealing our jobs. It's about this bizarre way he has of saying, you're trading this number with me and I'm trading that number with you. Therefore, we, you know, one of us is losing. Most people don't subscribe to that. They see trade as a two-way street and some things go to China and some things come from China to the US. To attack the WTO over that, I mean, really, if you look at Trump's um, trade advisors, they are lawyers who were steeped in uh, similar battles with Japan over steel tariffs many years ago. And they're, and they're really, really nuts about steel tariffs. And this has really got their goat, that the, the WTO can you know, lord it over the US. And we know that the Americans don't like anybody to tell them that there is a law which is supreme to American law. That just doesn't wash in America. But unfortunately, that's basically what America signed up to in 1995, when the WTO was founded. And it, you know, as Peter says, there was this this uh, constructive ambiguity built in, um, and it was it was left there. And there's possible argument to say that the Americans felt, you know, they were creating it, therefore it was their baby. And now it's come back, 
they're not happy with it. They've got this populist argument about China and, and jobs. And so they whack the WTO. It's completely misplaced. It's totally Trump. And it's, it's all to do with his sort of mad conception of the world. I agree completely that, that, that Trump has, has made this far worse. But don't forget, I mean, if we're talking about what are the origins of this, the origins of the complaint come from the Obama regime. Obama, the Obama regime did reject certain reappointments, but they didn't reject any reappointment. So, so Trump has seriously escalated this under the view that the Americans are all powerful and, and, and therefore might is right. Danny, might is right. Would that be helpful, do you think, to the WTO? Well, it's helpful. And I think we should also mention that the WTO, as far as I know, is the only international organization that can have sanctions on a country. Uh, and this is something that should not be underestimated because the sanctions are in francs, dollars and cents and can cost countries a great deal of money if they're not following the rules. And I remember when Sergio Vera de Mello was the High Commissioner for Human Rights, one of the first meetings he had was with Mike Moore, who was the head of the WTO, because he said, all I can do is shame people, name and shame, but you can actually hurt them. Uh, how do you do that? And how can I get my people to figure out how to get countries to do what I want them to do? So I think the issue of sanctions should not be ignored. Clarify that for me, Peter, because when we were talking before we actually started recording, you and Tom were telling me that people sometimes invest too much power in the WTO. The WTO doesn't have the power to tell people what to do. And even with sanctions, all the WTO can do is to authorize sanctions by complaining countries that, that may have won a case against somebody else. So, so, I mean, the famous case of tariffs that the US has imposed on Britain and the EU, the Americans proposed a certain amount of tariffs to say that's worse than the damage that's caused by the infringement, and therefore you have to cut it back. Basically, the authorization was on the level of sanctions, but it's the countries involved that do all of that themselves. It's not, they're not WTO sanctions. They're, in this case, US sanctions against the EU. Right, I'm going to change the area of discussion just a little bit now, because we've talked about the kind of undermining of the WTO, as some see it, from the United States. And yet there are other countries, Tom and I know one of them very well, who invest a huge amount of hope in what the WTO can do for them. Let's listen to a little bit of debate from the United Kingdom about what happens to the UK when it's no longer in a trade agreement with the European Union. Name me one country that is in the WTO rules that doesn't have a trade agreement with another country. Name me one country. No, of course, because WTO, WTO rules are the basis from which you begin. Yes, the sir. answer is there isn't a country. Article 24, paragraph 5. And how would you handle uh, paragraph 5C? I would confide entirely in paragraph 5B, because that is... But how would you get round what's in 5C? I would confide entirely in paragraph 5B, which is you know enough for our purposes. No. So what we heard there was somebody arguing with Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage and then UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson trying to explain what the WTO's Clause 24 is and not really succeeding. Tom, you and I both saw pro-Brexit demonstrators in London with placards saying, we want WTO rules now. They clearly believed that kind of sudden switch away from the EU, away from the single market and straight onto WTO rules would be absolutely fine. Now, it may not be all dark, it may not be all light, but bring some reality to that quite polarised debate. 
I think, I mean, it's difficult for me to get my head around because I just feel like people who talk about, you know, WTO rules will be fine, don't know what they're talking about. You know, I, I started off by saying um, the WTO is a is an agreement between countries to respect a sort of baseline, a bottom line, bare minimum of standards. And the EU and other international uh, regional agreements is built upon that. Uh, so, you know, the EU has obviously got far, far higher standards and far higher uh, levels of integration and it's much easier to do stuff across borders in the EU than it is in Africa, for example, or in Latin America. If you've got a, a regional agreement that you're part of, then you can sort of enhance those standards and you can bring yourself closer to other countries. If you fall out of those regional agreements, then suddenly you are on WTO rules, which is this baseline. And you've got the bare minimum protection that gives you no special advantage with any other countries. And every country in the WTO agrees to treat each other, every other country um, equally. So you've got to offer the same deal to everybody else. Now, if you're in a uh, special regional trade agreement, then you can get out of that. That's why the EU is, is, is more than WTO rules. But if you don't have a regional trade agreement, you're back on that bottom line. So the UK can say, um, you know, this is going to be our new tariff that we're going to put after we've left the EU. We're going to be on our own uh, as an independent country, and we're going to offer this tariff to the whole world. So then you have a dilemma. You know, you've decided you want to protect your car industry. You can put a 40% tariff on cars. Um, but that tariff is going to apply to everybody. If you want to keep trade going with the EU, you can have zero tariffs. But then that tariff has to apply to everybody. It's not just about tariffs. This applies across the board. It even applies to services trade. So, for example, if I say that German lawyers can carry on working in Manchester, the German lawyers will not have any special status if we're on WTO rules. I will ha also have to allow... Um, I, I don't know, Moroccan lawyers and South African lawyers and Russian lawyers on the same basis as I allow the German lawyers. So, you know, everybody has to get the same deal. So it just seems nuts to me that you would give away this very, very open system and suddenly bring yourself down to the baseline where you have really, I mean, they talk about bring back control, but there's no control because you can't differentiate. WTO rules do not allow you to discriminate between different trade partners. Yeah, I mean, we started off the programme talking about how trade is very complicated. People don't spend that much time thinking about it. And so when somebody moves in quickly to kind of politicise it, people may pay attention without really knowing very much at all. Peter, you had your hand up. Yeah, I, I, I think Tom's absolutely right. I try and see it in, in, a, in simpler terms. One thing also bothers me is this idea that, that the WTO is a bare minimum. It's, it's certainly not a bare minimum. It's a lot better than a bare minimum. That's sort of 40, 50 years of liberalisation built up and rulemaking built up. And the sad thing about the Brexit debate in the UK is that when, when the Brexiteers argued that WTO is fine, the Remainers then said WTO is terrible. Well, it's neither. The point that they need to keep in mind is, as Tom said, as a member of the EU, the UK's trade with the rest of the EU is relatively frictionless. There are, there are very few trade barriers there. After leaving the EU, anything that is not covered in a UK-EU agreement is on WTO terms. And that means new trade barriers where none existed before. That means new costs where none existed before. It, it means that, that there are new obstacles to trade where none existed before. And if the less that is included in a UK-EU trade agreement, the more trade barriers there will be between the UK and the EU. And if there is no agreement between the UK and the EU, then all 
trade between the UK and the EU. We'll have new trade barriers when none existed before. Danny, how do you think people, journalists indeed, and trade negotiators maybe can address this? The fact that, in a way, what the WTO actually is for and does is being hijacked, to a certain extent, by politics. It's so complicated, the rules inside, that to vulgarise and make it easy for everyone in the street to understand that it's fundamentally a win-win situation is extraordinarily difficult. When you get into the technicalities of the WTO, article this or article that, the average person doesn't see the advantage. All they want to see is protectionism for our workers. And we have enormous problems between the WTO, the ILO, what's called the social clause. So it really became a, a target for people to criticise without really knowing the positive things that go on. So we've talked about some of the challenges facing the WTO at the moment, the politicisation of certain aspects of it, what it can and can't do. There's another big challenge coming up. Um, Director General Roberto Azevedo is leaving early, a year early, which means the WTO needs a new leader. Peter, what do you think? What kind of person do you think the WTO needs at this point? A former... EU delegate in Geneva, who is now in a senior position in the commission back in Brussels, tweeted a few days ago, and I love it. He said, the WTO is an ugly building in beautiful surroundings. It has a secretariat who are the servants of the members. It has a pile of agreements, and it doesn't need reform. It's the members who need reform. And, and that's the point. A lot of people think that the new director general is going to be able to rescue the WTO. As Tom said right from the beginning, the WTO doesn't have any power and the director general doesn't have any power, but the director general can have influence and that's very, very different. And what it means is if there's going to be reform in the WTO, that has to come from the members. The director general cannot offer a blueprint and say, this is what we, I think we ought to do to reform the WTO. They just tell him to go away. But if there are signs that they are about to compromise, a director general can be an effective mediator and bring the members together and say, how about this, how about that? But they have to have the desire and the um, ideas to do it first. The director general cannot impose it on them. Danny, is this the age-old mistake that happens so often in Geneva that member states, when they want to criticise a multilateral organisation, forget that it's made up of member states and that it's member states who decide? The question is the relationship between the member states and, and the director general or the secretariat. I tell a little anecdote. I had a dear friend who worked many years in the secretariat, and when I asked him what he accomplished... He said, in documents now, Secretariat has a capital S instead of a small one. Uh, and what he was trying to say, it's like the Secretary General of the UN. Is he, is he or her a Secretary or a General? Uh, so the question is, is it only member-driven or does it have something more than that? Tom? The current head of the WTO is the guy who we see on our TV screen. So we imbue him with some sort of power and authority. As Peter quite rightly says, he doesn't have any authority. I mean, he is really um, more of a secretary than a general. But, you know, he does have some sort of moral power, some, you know, ability to influence and suggest and advise. And, you know, he's there at the center of things. And he can, you know, he, he possibly can be the lubricant to help the wheels move in the right direction. But be in no doubt that this guy... 
is not at the top table, the really important deals are being done between Washington and Beijing. I once asked Azevedo in the middle of this kind of crazy US-China trade war that, that you know, really blew up two years ago, and we had a press conference with him. And I said, you know, just to be clear, have you actually met Trump? And, you know, he's sort of slightly obfuscated, but it was painfully obvious he'd never met Trump. Trump is the key guy, and Azevedo never met him. If you never speak to Trump, you're not going to solve this problem. Right, well, we're almost at the end of the programme. In fact, Tom, you kind of almost anticipated what my last question would be. I'm going to put it to Peter and to Danny anyway. And then one last final word from you, Tom. But Peter, um, if there's one reform, you already touched on member states need to reform. But if there's one thing that would put the WTO back on track, what do you think it would be? And also, where do you think we'd be without the WTO? Well, firstly, Tom's right that it can't be solved in Geneva. To say, as Director General, I'm going to going to bring the heads of governments together, it's not for the Director General to do that. It's, I mean, so what can be done to, to rescue the WTO? It needs a change of heart, basically, um, from various members, including the United States, and, and um, that's going to happen in the capitals. The dispute settlement problem needs to be resolved, that's clear, and the appellate body problem, and if they can resolve that, yes, but I don't think that's going to be resolved in Geneva. Danny, final words from you? I mean, we heard at the start from Peter the many things the WTO does to encourage free trade, countries trading successfully with one another. We've heard a lot about stalemates and disagreements and disputes as well. Are you convinced we actually need this organisation? Yes, I'm convinced we need some organisation. And I think the only major reform that can happen to the WTO will take place eventually in the United States in November with an election. Uh, As long as there's an anti-multilateral sentiment in Washington, None of the international organizations, World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, all of them are suffering. So if there's a change of heart, change of leadership in Washington, I think there'll be hope. Okay, final word from you, Tom, because I asked this last week when we were talking about the World Health Organization and its problems of alleged politicization or people politicizing it is, you know, who's going to be the loser if the United States walks away? I think that the loser will be the world, as in what's already happening with the uh, paralysis of the WTO, is that uh, countries are getting together into other trading groups to agree stuff that uh, needs to be agreed. So, for example, we've got, you know, you've got the um, the EU doing great big trade deals, enormous trade deals with um, Japan and Mercosur and such like, got an enormous deal in Asia. Essentially, the world is kind of fragmenting. Um, the WTO is supposed to be the World Trade Organization. You know, now we're getting into potentially regional trade organizations. And so we could end up with a world which has got, uh, you know, these regional blocks really, really entrenched and not really speaking to each other. I don't think that is a very good prospect. Another thing I would say is that we, we don't just need the WTO as it is, but we need a future WTO. We, we need a WTO 2.0. The rules that exist today, they're all about agriculture and steel and um, smokestack industries. There's so much more that could be done. There's obviously a huge new economy, a digital economy that needs to be regulated or where people need to have some sort of agreement. I mean, what happens if I start running, you know, robo cafes uh, from my house in, in, in France around the world or, you know, robo hairdressers where I'm cutting your hair um, with, my, with my robots uh, operating from my nerve center? Uh, <laughs> you've all got this. I'm 
blessed with baldness, but you've all got those COVID cuts. Um, there are new industries. There are, there's new ways of working. It's massively, the world is massively changing. And the WTO is currently totally not changing with it. It's not set up to meet the requirements. So it really needs to get sorted out. If it didn't exist, you know, it would be very difficult to reinvent it. But I feel like that would be what has to happen. And, and November's election is surely the best hope. November, everybody's watching that election. Well, on that note, this programme comes to an end. A little reminder that before November, we do have the appointment of the new WTO Director General. Nominations close in July, and there are candidates from Egypt, Nigeria, Mexico. And we'll find out in September who will lead the WTO at a time of great challenge, amid calls for reform and criticism. Some of it, as we've heard, quite misinformed. After the programme, Tom, I want the number of your robo-hairdresser as a matter of urgency. For now, though, thanks to my guests, Peter Unfacorn, Tom Miles and Danny Warner. And thank you to all of you for listening. And a reminder just before we go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including a special documentary on the United Nations at 75 and an exclusive interview with former Human Rights Commissioner Zaid Rad Al-Hussein. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.